This morning, we start a new series, a four-week series before we head into the summer, called Small Letters with a Big Message. And we're going to take four weeks to look at four letters that take about one page in your Bible. Very easy to flip past. But these small letters are significant, and I trust that they're going to encourage us. And this morning, we're going to look at one very small letter uh, written to a man named Philemon. We've grown up uh, referring to him as Philemon. The the correct uh, pronunciation of his name is Philemon. So even though he's not here to be offended for our purposes this morning, uh, we'll use his correct uh, Greek pronunciation. So let's read together this letter to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, who is a fellow friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, now also prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he's wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother. Let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. For I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. As do Mark, Aristocharis, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and your spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. This is a small letter that's written to a a friend. All of Paul's letters are written to entire churches, and no doubt this was read to the church, as it does make mention to the church in your house. But on a surface reading, this is a very small letter. It's one page, and it's a brother writing to another brother. 
on behalf of another brother. That's what this is. And yet it is deeply profound. The historian N.T. Wright says of this letter that it's deeply integrated Christian thinking and living. It offers this blend that's totally characteristic of Paul of love and wisdom. There's actually a little bit of humor in here, which I'll point at. Um, gentleness, tact, and, and above all, an appeal to Christian maturity. We're going to look at this letter and um, consider three things from it. Firstly, the context of the letter. Uh, after we consider the context, secondly, consider that Paul has a vision for a new community. And then thirdly, there's a call to a new way of living. First, the content of the letter. Secondly, vision for new community. And then the call to a new way of living. So the content, the context here is uh, this letter is countercultural. It is very subversive. It is subverting the stratified way of relating in ancient Rome, the Greco-Roman world. Because there were layers upon layers of how you related to people in the ancient world, in this context. If you were at the bottom at ground zero, that meant you were a slave or a woman. That's how abhorrent the structure was. And Onesimus is a slave. And so this is a subversive letter. Very, It is extremely subversive. He's speaking about a way to relate to a slave in a way that nobody for millennia was, was, was writing in this manner. So we need to just sit as moderns in the gravity of what he's actually writing here. Colossus was in modern western Turkey. And uh, Philemon is a wealthy, very wealthy business, uh, businessman. And he would go to Ephesus from Colossus. They would in their business routes, their trade routes, to do business regularly. And when uh, Philemon was in Ephesus at the time, and we're getting this from the end of the book of Acts, Ephesus is upside down as the gospel is exploding, as the resurrected Jesus Christ has been seen in the ancient world by hundreds of witnesses by now. And people in Ephesus are coming to saving faith in Jesus in such mass that the that those who were worked with silver and melted the silver down and made idols to like Athena and Zeus and others, they were going out of business because nobody was purchasing their idols and they were complaining to the apostles. You find all of that in the book, at the end of the book of Acts. The, the gospel has thrown <laughs> commerce on its ear. And so Philemon goes to Ephesus and this is how Philemon meets Paul. So he comes, into counter, uh, comes and encounters him. And in this ancient context, you'd often sit and listen to people in the street share their philosophies. That was common. And so he hears the gospel through Paul. He comes to faith. And not only does he come to faith, but he becomes extremely generosity, uh, generous. And he opens his home to host a church. church. Church buildings and structures didn't show up for about three centuries. And so for for 300 plus years, the church was meeting in these small houses. And um, people of means, people who had wealth, they would often, their homes were the host homes. Because everybody else, you just had a room for you, your family, your animals. That was kind of all in the ancient context. But people with means would open their homes up. That's what Philemon does. And uh, 
So he's got this, this uh, church in his house. It's important to know that as well in this context is you, you get the names of the leaders. Epaphras is the, the pastor. Philemon is the host. He's not the pastor. But these aren't small independent works just kind of doing their own thing. Sometimes when you think of the early church, you romanticize it. Like there's just this handful of people underground meeting in a house. That part is true. You're kind of doing their own thing. That part is not true. They were highly organized. They cared deeply about their doctrine and their teaching and and so the training was intense and the ways in which they wanted to preserve the gospel preserve the preachings of christ circulate um uh their the the works and the letters and so forth and so on was this was all very intentional ephesians chapter 2 talks about how the churches were built on the prophets uh words and the apostles doctrine and so uh they cared about all of this deeply so while Philemon is being very generous, opening his home, hosting a church, comes to faith in, uh, in Paul, he befriends Paul, and he's supporting his ministry. And he's got this slave, Anasimus, who has run away. Not only has he run away, but verse 18 tells us that he stole from Philemon and ran away. So in this context, there's going to be severe punishment, at minimum, you know, mega financial implications and... and uh, and physical beatings, and even to the point of death. This is what Onesimus is facing. And uh, when we come to this abhorrent subject of slavery in the scripture, there's a couple things we need to realize. Firstly, as moderns, we tend to just see the word slavery, and we immediately think of the, the chattel slavery of like the African slave trade. That's the context we almost immediately go to. And no doubt that was abhorrent, and no doubt that existed. For example, when Pharaoh enslaved the Hebrews, uh, the Jewish uh, people in uh, the Old Testament, that was an ethnic uh, race-based slavery, and it was violent and oppressive. So we do have examples of that. However, the word slave comes into translation difficulties because it can mean that. It can also mean that in the ancient world, everybody was a farmer, and you have one year of terrible weather, and now you're, you're bankrupt. And you have to sell yourself into slavery, but you were still actually a free person. They just used the term slavery to mean I have to work for somebody else until I pay my debts off and get enough capital to put seed in the ground and start over. And then you were free to go. And so when you read the book of Leviticus, sometimes modern critics of the scripture will say, well, Leviticus is talking about how to handle your slaves. And shouldn't this God of love just say don't have slaves? Well, what the laws are actually saying is don't have slaves in the way that the ancient world has slaves, like they're your property. They're not property. They're not tools. They're people. And they're free people. And once they work off their economic debt, they're free to go. And so it meant that. It also meant people who um, did not have the means to be able to uh, run their own land, run their own businesses, and they, they gladly worked for someone else. And it just meant that they didn't own their own home. And they also referred to them as slaves. So this slavery that Onesimus is in is likely an economic slavery. I'm not trying to say that slavery in ancient Rome was good. It was harsh and it was terrible. If you read Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle calls slaves tools. If Aristotle wrote this letter, he would have said, Hey, looks like one of the tools got out of the toolbox. I'm sending back the hammer. Feel free to do with the tool what you wish. Put the tool back into practice or kill the tool. It doesn't matter. The slave is just a tool. That is Nicomachean ethics. And you can see how Paul is now appealing in a way that is just galaxies away from that kind of language and how he's supposed to relate to the slave. If you, if you and I were to uh, 
had a time machine in the parking lot where to go back to uh, ancient Colossus, go back to Rome, because Anisimus runs off to Rome. And the reason the letter says he runs off to Rome is because about, well, the figures were different depending on which historian I read, but I'm just going to give you a range. Anywhere from 70 to 90 percent were the numbers I was reading of slavery of the population of Rome were slaves. So again, you can't just import the sort of the chattel slavery context into that because even though there may have been some of that from uh, conquered regions where there was uh, ethnic-based slavery in Rome, the 90% number means that term slavery, which is abhorrent to us and it should be, it also meant everything to just people who were your workers. So if we were to get in a time machine, get in the 1988 DeLorean, go back to the, take Anisimus, bring him back to the future, we bring him here and we say, behold, our modern city of Kitchener-Waterloo, where there are no slaves. And Anisimus would say, wow, no slaves? How many people live in Kitchener-Waterloo? And we would say, 500,000. Wow, 500,000 people and there's no slaves? And we would say as moderns, that's right, Anisimus, there are no slaves. And then Anisimus would say, 500,000 people own their own homes and land? And we would say, well, no, I mean, we don't have condo fees and properties. I mean, everybody's got a mortgage, Anisimus. We got mortgages. But behold, there are no... He said, well, hold on, check, hold on a second. See, where I come from, if you don't own your own stuff, that's called being a slave. Ah, but Anisimus, there are no slaves in the, in the wondrous modern city of Kitchener-Waterloo. Behold, Anisimus, we have two universities here. We are modern and educated. And Anisimus would say, wow, so nobody has to go to work on Monday? You can just rejoice and enjoy this beautiful sunny weather you're experiencing? And we would say, well, <laughs> I mean, we got to go to work. Because if we don't go to work, then we can't pay my rent. And if I can't pay my rent, the bank takes my house. And Anisimus would say, what's a bank? And i say, well, the bank is the one that owns my mortgage. Said, what's a mortgage? Well, that means that, okay, Anisimus, <clears throat> this is my house. But I have to pay the bank a mortgage or a condo payment or rent so that I can stay here. And Anisimus would say, well, what happens if you don't pay your rent or your mortgage payment? And we would say... Well, then the bank takes our house. And Anisimus would say, so the bank owns your house? And we would say, okay. And Anisimus would say, behold, the modern city of Kitchener-Waterloo probably has 90% slavery. Do you understand? Are we good intellectual moderns? Are we all on the same page now? So I'm not trying to diminish it and be like, oh, it wasn't a big deal. It was a massive deal because they treated the slaves like tools. So what we need to sit in here Particularly if you are exploring Christian faith and you're a critic of Christianity, and you're like, yeah, this is a hang-up for me. Listen, my friend, Paul is saying to Philemon, you've got to receive back Onesimus like a brother. Nobody was writing this. Nobody was relating like this. This is the context of this tiny little letter with massive global implications. You know, at the end of uh, Romans, Paul mentions uh, the guy who's helping him scribe the letter, and he's like, go on, go on, put your name in the letter, and he says, I, Tertius, and Tertius means third, and then he says, and I'll also mention this other guy, Cordus, and Cordus means fourth, and Onesimus means useful. The Romans would name their slaves things like, you're third, you're fourth, you're useful, you're this, you're that, so that every time their name was called, they were reminded of their station in life. 
So that's why Paul uses a little bit of humor here as he's kicking the ladder out of the Roman slave culture. And he says, you know, this guy hasn't been very useful for you, (laughs) but he's become very useful for me. And he's using Anisimus' even name there in the original Greek to say, this guy has an intrinsic value as a divine image bearer of God that this world can't understand, apart from bending their knee to the glory of the God, the creator of the universe, king of the universe, who came in Jesus Christ and went to the cross and died an abhorrent death of a slave in our stead and in our place. And united to him, that's a game changer that changes everything. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So this is the context for all of this stuff. He says in verse 20, Let me have joy from you, Philemon, in the Lord. Let me have joy from you. That word joy, again in the Greek, it, it, it translates oninamai, which is the same root word as onisimus. So Paul's playing around here. He's having a little bit of fun with his friend. Remember, this is a letter to his friend, Philemon. Hey, let me have a little bit of, what word should I use? Oh, I know, Aninamai. Let me have a little bit of Aninamai from you. You know that Onesimus guy? How about you send my brother back to me? Paul's in prison. He's in chains for the gospel. Onesimus comes to saving faith, and he's been caring for Paul while he's in jail. And Paul's like, I love this kid. He calls him my own heart. He's like, receive this kid like you'd receive me, my own heart. He loves him. He wants him, he wants him to stay with him while he's in prison. But there's a problem, and the problem is there needs to be reconciliation now. Which leads us to the second part of the letter, Paul's vision for a new community. Paul knows something of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, the implications of believing in the scandalous, saving grace of Jesus, that that's going to play out in every facet of our lives, in the way that we relate to each other, particularly in the church. So I've been talking quite a bit about the city, having some fun there, but now I want us to think about this room because that's how small and intimate and significant this letter is. How do we relate to each other in this room? Or how do you not relate to anybody in this room? This is a deep vision for a new kind of community that Paul sees is going to, because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, be in the ethos of the church. The church community is gospel-driven, and the relationships in the church are to be familial and not transactional. And he's expressing all of this familial language. Receive him as a brother. Receive him like you'd receive me. Receive my own heart. There's a, if, if there's a new humanity in Christ, that means there's a new community in Christ. The new humanity leads to new humani- community. This is changing everything. The slave is not a slave. Chains shall he break. The slave is our brother, as the carol goes. That's what Paul is appealing for here. And again, I'm going to borrow from N.T. Wright, the historian, who says, you know, draws our attention to the fact that Paul isn't asking for Philemon to just go, look, man, forgive and forget. Look, man, let bygones be be bygones. Just water under the bridge. No, he's not doing that at all. He's not offering Paul any advice. Look, just take the guy back. You don't have to like him. Just take him back. He's not saying that. He's not just saying relate to him with sort of a detachment. Whether he's here or not, it doesn't matter. Whether you come into church and you see that person, are they missing for 
six days, six weeks, six months, and you think about it, you think about them, but I don't know, I'm going to reach out, I need to text, I don't need to relate to them, it doesn't matter. Just this aloof sort of way of relating to one another, Paul's like, no way. It's just profound what he pokes at here. He's saying, no, I'm appealing to some deep Christian virtues, that there's going to be forgiveness. Forgiveness is not an emotion, it's an act of the will. And Paul knows something of his friend Philemon. Philemon, I just made the mistake myself. He knows something of Philemon. He knows that this guy deeply loves Jesus and his life has been changed. His, his life has been changed so profoundly, he's not like, yeah, yeah, I'm good with that Jesus guy. If I have time for my, business, business, my busy uh, business life of traveling to Ephesus, because I'm making stacks on stacks, maybe I'll pop by church. No, Philemon is like, my house is the church. I got more room than everybody in here. Come meet here. So if Paul knows something when he's appealing for this new kind of community. And in verse 6, we get a hint of it where he says, you know, we're share- you're sharing in all things. You share your faith. The church is encouraged when things are good. Now I'm asking you to dig down deep into your Christian virtue when things are terrible. And he uses the word koinonia. Koinonia, this sharing of deep fellowship. And it's not just sort of a cordial thing. It's, it means that on the basis of the faith, the church isn't just people who are like-minded that come together and we have affinity for one another because we share the same political leanings or we all cheer for the same hockey team or we all like the same food. It doesn't mean those things, even though when we find in this room here other people that share our interests, it's so wonderful and we can enjoy deep friendships I'm also not suggesting that 200 people can be deeply, you know, connected in friendship to 200. That's not reasonable. But it is expected that everyone in this room, starting with this preacher, that we're deeply connected in some way to a handful. There's that koinonia, that shared common faith is the bedrock of everything. And so Paul's sort of appealing to all of this. And he says, you know, I could tell you what to do because I'm an apostle. And you owe me your life otherwise because the saving grace of the gospel came as I was ministering. And he goes, I know that. He goes, but I'm appealing to your compassion. And you might think to yourself, well, that's kind of manipulative. I think we're splitting hairs here. I think if you write down, I could ask you to do it, but I'm not going to. I think right there you've just been manipulative. Here is how we know the Apostle Paul is not being manipulative. What he is asking for doesn't help him at all. It actually hurts him. Because he'd rather have Anisimus stay with him because he's locked up in, print, in chains and he's got a kid who he loves who can run out and get him food and get him a warm blanket. He, so actually what Paul is calling Philemon to do, reaching down to the depths of his Christian virtue, is not benefiting Paul. It's benefiting the community. And that's how you know somebody is not being manipulative when they step into your life and they say, look, brother, look, sister, here is what I think would be good for you to do. The way you know they're not being manipulative is that it's not to their benefit, it's the benefit of the community. And so, it's exactly what Paul does. He's calling Philemon to reconcile and radically break the culture norms of the master-slave dynamic and relate in a way that was not known in the ancient Greco-Roman world, which, socially speaking, was impossible, but united to Christ is now made possible. 
Not only possible, but Paul expects it. And by extension, all of us sort of live into this reality of what it means to be a new community here, where we basically check our status at the door. The things that would elevate you in the great modern city of Kitchener-Waterloo don't mean anything when you walk in here. Out there, ah, oh, you have a PhD, ah, oh, you're a... Uh, business owner, ah, you, you're street smart, ah, you, you can't, your family came here with nothing in their pocket, $10, and you've built this thing, and out there, oh, the accolades abound, but in here, there's only brother, there's only sister, and everybody checks the status at the door. That's what Paul's appealing for. So that if somebody wanders in off the street, which does happen on occasion, and they wander in here and they sit down, your way of relating to them is not with superiority. And the reverse is true. Perhaps you're the one that comes in here and you say, oh, this city, they can't stop talking about how the following things are important, and I don't have any of those things in my life. So I come cowering into the church like everybody's better than I am. No, they're not. Oh, man. I don't think I'm ever going to be in a be able to own a home, and all anybody can ever talk about is how real estate is crazy, and I'm not going to be a homeowner. Who cares? In here. Ah, but I don't have a... I have a, ma- I have a bachelor's degree, but i got to get a master's. And well, if you get a master's, you got to get the PhD. Oh, no, everybody's talking about that, and I, don't, I never went to school. So I come in the church, I feel like a second-class citizen. I come to Redeemer, and I look around, and every, there's, just, there's just walking degrees everywhere, and I'm just reminded that I don't have a... Who cares? None of us are any more important than the other one. We check our status at the door. Ah, but the culture that I came from, this is the way things were in the family, in the, in the country where my family emigrated from. And I just sat beside this person who's from this other country where, my fa- where their family emigrated from. And their family oppressed my family. So I'm not sure I can worship at Redeemer and sit in the same row where our family history's got beef. Out there, difficult to, even by cultural standards, try and reconcile those things. And thankfully, our culture has a high degree of commitment of trying to reconcile things, though we don't necessarily define reconciliation in the same, in the same ways and all in the same points. But thankfully, that is in the ethos of our culture now. But that is because the heart of the resurrected Jesus Christ has been thoroughly massaged into the Western world for 2,000 years. And so therefore, whether you are an atheist or an agnostic, or a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim, you are likely relating to the ethnicities of others on the basis of the ways in which Jesus Christ and his resurrection has changed the world, demonstrated here in this letter to Philemon, when he's writing things that the world didn't see for millennia. Way to relate to the slave as a brother. Just absolutely mind-blowing. If you can't tell, this really excited me this week as I was looking at the beauty of this small letter with a big message. It's just amazing. Paul envisions this new way for us to relate as, as a church in here. It's not commercial. We're not calculating the ROI. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a person because you've been hurt by the church or some pastor 
was terrible or some person in the church was terrible to you or the institution of the church was damaging and terrible. Look, man, there's so many horror stories about church. I'm not even going to begin to defend that because there's failed humanity everywhere in the name of Jesus Christ. But what I will say to you is that you will not find any of those failed, hurtful, tragic, traumatic characteristics in Jesus Christ. So it is right and good to call the terrible thing what it was. But to not, therefore, on the backdrop of that disappointment, turn from the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the community that he has given of his church, of his people. And it might take you a long time for those wounds to heal so that you can re-engage again in a meaningful way. But my friend, my brother, my sister, you must. Otherwise, and you're not going to like this, you are coming in here. not relating to the church-like family. You are coming in here calculating the ROI. And you're deciding, if I open my heart and I extend myself and I extend friendship and I extend generosity and I try to make some friends in this community here called Redeemer and that doesn't work out for me, that's going to be very painful. Therefore, I won't. That's calculating ROI. Perhaps you've come in and you've looked around and you've surveyed the room and you've decided that you're the smartest person in here and nobody has anything to offer to you. Well, my friend, you should write a book. If you can't tell, that was a little bit of humor. Also, perhaps you're walking in here and you say, I can't be friends with the people in here. I'm a knuckle-dragging worm. I'm terrible. If they knew the kind of sin that I did this week, if they knew the kinds of things rolling around in my mind or my heart, I can't be friends with these people. They're all better than I am. I'm the worst one. That is still pride in a toxic way. One form of pride is I'm better than everyone. Therefore, God somehow made a mistake. And the other form of pride is I'm worse than everyone. And God has therefore made a mistake. But either way, it's not an acknowledgement of your identity in Christ. And what, who you are and what that means. So my friend, if you take anything away from the sermon today, it's that when we walk in this church, check the status at the door so that we can love and care and enter into each other's lives in significant and beautiful ways. We do not have a God who is a cold deity that wants obedient subjects. We have a loving Father that wants children. It's familial. Which leads us to the final thing, the call to a Christian way of living. Empowered by our union with Christ, our identity is secure enough to both surrender our status and initiate reconciliation when somebody else in this room offends us. And I want to acknowledge that reconciliation isn't easy, and I want to acknowledge that if there's pain and sorrow and trauma and relationships that are unsafe, that this whole sermon is very difficult to hear. And I want to be very clear to you that Paul is being wise. He is not sending Onesimus to his death. He is not sending Onesimus willy-nilly to ongoing abuse. He says to Philemon, I know you are going to obey this, and I'm confident, actually, you're going to go even over and above what I'm asking you to do here. He knows his brother, and he's calling up deep Christian virtue out of Philemon. He's calling him to say, you've got to receive this guy. So he's not sending Anisimus into abuse and, and, and into just ongoing uh, 
terror. So reconciliation for, for us as believers is not some trite thing that I'm going to just make trite and say, therefore, we have to reconcile. We don't have any control over how our efforts for reconciliation are received. But we are called by God to extend that opportunity for reconciliation. And that's as far as that can go. Forgiveness is commanded in Scripture because forgiveness is a one-way street. It has nothing to do with how the other person reacts. Forgiveness is not emotion, it's an act of the will. Reconciliation is not a one-way street. Reconciliation cannot be demanded. That is why this letter did not read like, Hey, Philemon, it's Paul. P.S. Your apostle, your boy. I just need you to know you're united to Christ now. You're indwelled with the Spirit. And that means you've got to reconcile. Period. End of conversation. Do it. Reconcile. That's why the tone is nothing like that. It's a two-way street. It's going to require humility on Philemon. It's going to require humility in Anisimus. And it's going to require a long road of calling what things actually are. And when people aren't up for that, we can't reconcile. But in this room, we've got to ex- at least extend that to each other. Maybe somebody here offended you. Maybe you're offended right now at someone. So to extend the reconciliation is to say, look, we've got to talk about this and we've got to call it what it is. That's why Paul says, I'm writing this with my own hand. If he owes you anything, I will repay. In other words... Somebody's got to absorb something. It's not just forgive and forget. There is no reconciliation with forgive and forget. Reconciliation requires that we call it what it is and then we remember it. That's why even in Revelation chapter 5, after the the return of Christ and the renewal of all things, it's not like everybody just gets the men in black brain zap and nobody remembers what happened on earth. That's why they're all seeing the Lamb of God who appears like a lamb who went through slaughter. There is a remembrance of what we've been delivered by. There's no celebration if you're not remembering and calling the thing what it was. And so all of this is true, but you want to know something. This is all the meta-narrative of Scripture. It's all the meta-narrative of the Gospel. And I close with this. Notice that nowhere in this letter does Paul expound upon and teach on the forgiveness, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And the reason he doesn't teach it is he's living it This is a live-action parable. I'm in chains. This slave has wronged you. I'm writing this with my own hand. I will pay. I will absorb the debt. Paul is living out the reality of the gospel in his own life. The gospel is being preached through Paul's very life. And what this teaches us is we are all Anisimus. We were all once slaves to our own sin, slaves to our own appetites, slaves to our own intellect, slaves to our own natural inclination to live our lives apart from God. We're not going to worship you, God. We'll be our own gods. Thank you. That's Genesis 3. All of us were born into this condition of being anisimus to our own way. But God in His great grace has gone to the cross as the substitutionary atonement for our sin. Not only that, but is united to us to Him. Not only that, but Christus Victor, the one who makes us victorious over our sin, so that we're not slaves to unforgiveness and sorrow and sadness and offense in this room. May God continue the good work that He has begun in us, in this church. May our fellowship with one another be as it was in this letter. 
where we live with a cross-shaped love and forgiveness with one another, desiring reconciliation, where our differences are overcome by grace and the indwelling spirit and love. Amen. Let's pray.